Well, good morning, Kingsway. Uh, it is always a pleasure to be to be back with you. My name is Scott, as Jeff said earlier. Uh, my wife Sarah and I, we served here for several years back until 2013 when we moved to Kentucky. And uh, we were invited to participate in the Prime Conference that took place yesterday. Had a great time. I know several of you were there. And then Matt was gracious enough to invite me to stay and share this weekend. So I'm glad to be here. And from what I understand, you're working through the Gospel of Mark, right? Okay. So great book. Uh, I love the Gospel of Mark. In fact, if you are you're relatively new to the Christian faith or you don't even know what exactly you believe yet about Jesus or maybe you love Jesus but you're intimidated by the Bible, Mark is a great place to start because it is the shortest of the four Gospels. It'll give you sort of a, a quick glimpse of Jesus' life, what he was about and ultimately what he came for. And we're going to get there in just a moment, but I want to start with an observation. Have you ever noticed that there are some things in life that are so important they not only need to be communicated, they need to be communicated in a particular way. All right. For example, marriage proposals would fit into this category. Guys, if you're married, uh, you propose to your wife in a, in a special way. Hopefully you put some thought into it. Uh, we hope so at least. Like you planned it out, you tried to make it special for her. Uh, ladies, if you're married, didn't the manner he proposed to you matter? You wanted it to be special. You wanted it to reflect your relationship and, and who you are. You wanted him to have put some, some time and thought in it. No one, no one dreams when they're single that someone's just going to put a ring in their face one day and say, might as well, right? You know, we, we have, we have, we're single. We haven't found anybody better yet. Like, maybe, maybe we should just go ahead and do this. Like, that's not our dream. We dream of something more, something so important that needs to be communicated in a special way. And so when I proposed to Sarah... Um, I took her to Nashville, Tennessee, which was the place of our first date. We lived in Tennessee at the time when we started to date. We lived in Knoxville. And um, we went back to Nashville, and I had tricked her into thinking that going back to Nashville was her idea. And it's always good when you start your proposal story by saying that you tricked um, the person that you're going to ask to marry you. So um, I said, hey, let's, let's go back. She thought it was her idea. So we go back there, and it was a Saturday in September, 2008. And we had a route we were going to follow that kind of mirrored our first date. And I had friends with cameras lined up all through the city taking pictures of the day. She didn't know about the friends taking pictures. I proposed in a special place to us. We had a nice dinner. And then a few months later at Christmas, for her gift, I gave her the album of the photos that were taken from that day. So she says I did okay. Um, that was an okay proposal. Like it was good, good enough. So hopefully just the okay means it's just getting better every day after that. Like that's what she means. But my all-time favorite proposal comes from a guy named Matt Still. I don't know if you've seen this video or not. It went viral a couple years ago, but he proposed uh, to his fiance in a very special way. Caught it on video, and it's a few minutes long, but it's important enough. I wanted you to see this whole video, so check this out. story so true it couldn't have been written i know how much she means to you i know how much you love her i know she is your heart there comes a time when every father lets his little girl go i just want you to know that i love her too and i am by no means trying to steal her away from you to another man that loves her as much as he does i want to spend the rest of my life with her 
She is my heart, my friend, my everything. It's a story about two people who find true love right around the corner. She is nothing like any woman I've ever met before and everything I've always wanted and more. That teaches us everyone out there does have a soulmate. I want you to know that I'll protect her. I will honor and respect her and treat her the way she deserves to be treated. And that every true love story isn't in the movies. I didn't even know what real love is, but she is showing me and teaching me every day. It might be old fashioned, it may not even be necessary, but it's important to me. And I know it's important to your daughter that I do this as well. I'd like to have your blessing, sir. May I have your daughter's hand in marriage? You have my permission for a hand in marriage. I would love to have you as a son-in-law. Coming this winter from Universal Studios, making the movies jealous. What are you waiting for? Yeah, didn't he do a good job? 
It's funny, if you're sitting next to someone and uh, you've been thinking about popping the question for a while, like the bar was just raised a little bit uh, for you. Don't let her down because expectations are high. Like there are some things in life that are so important, they not only have to be communicated or said, they got to be communicated in a particular way. There was a guy back in the 1960s, his name was Marshall McLuhan, and he coined the phrase, the medium is the message. You ever heard that before? The medium is the message. He meant sometimes how you say something is just as important as what you actually say. And we know this intuitively to be true, whether we're talking about marriage proposals, whether we're talking about the birth of a child, or you're maybe introducing two friends who are very important to you, the way you introduce them, or accepting a new job. Like, we know this to be true, but what we don't always recognize is that in a way it's also biblical. I want to show you from Mark chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, um, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament, about three-fourths of the way through. When you get there, you want chapter 11, and we're actually going to read verses 1 through 11, and we're going to see Jesus enter into Jerusalem, which is significant in and of itself, but he's not, it's just not that he enters, it's the way that he enters in that's important. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning, it's also going to be on the screen. This is what it says, Mark chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Verse 4, They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means he saves. That's what that word means. Hosanna, he saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then verse 11 says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now our passage, it starts with Bethany, the mention of the town Bethany in verse 1. It ends with the mention of Bethany in verse 11. He goes back to it. So this kind of encapsulates our passage. It stands on its own. What I want to do is I want to work through this in, in two smaller sections to show you how it relates to our idea that some things are so important they not only have to be communicated, they've got to be communicated in a particular way. And so let's read these first six or seven verses again. I want to highlight a few portions. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, so this is Jesus and his disciples coming towards uh, the most important city in the Bible. They came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, we're going to get to the significance of the cult in just a moment, but first I want to talk about uh, this word immediately. 
It appears twice in our passage, once in verse 2, then again in verse 3. Look at verse 2. Jesus tells them to go in the village, and he says, immediately as you enter it, this is what you're going to find. And then in the next verse, he says, if anyone asks you what you're going to do with it, say, Jesus needs this, and he's immediately going to send it back to you. Now, in the original language, this is the word uthus. Sometimes I like to teach words, so say that once with me. Say, uthus. This is a word that appears repeatedly, uthus, throughout the gospel of Mark. It's kind of a theme of the gospel. I told you it's the shortest of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is by far the shortest. It's got this very quick pace about it. Jesus is always, he's immediately going here, and then immediately he says this, and then immediately that happens. Mark sort of lets some of the details of Jesus' life slide so that he can get to the main point. And his main point is Jesus on the cross. That's why Mark is sometimes called the, the gospel of the suffering servant, because he wants to see Jesus on, on Calvary. That's where Mark's trying to take us. But we err if we think that that just because Mark speaks with brevity or he moves at a fast pace, that Jesus doesn't care about the details. you got to understand, Jesus managed his life with a surgeon's precision. And there is nothing that takes place in Mark chapter 11 that doesn't happen without Jesus' intention and without his full acknowledgement. Have you ever thought about how Jesus knew there was a, a cult waiting for him in this village? I mean, he's the, he's the son of God, right? So maybe he just knows. He just knows everything going on. But you also got to account for how, how the owners of this donkey, how they just let it go so freely. Just because someone asked, said they needed it, Jesus needed it. Someone shows up at your house this afternoon and says they need your car for the Lord's work, like you're just going to give them the car. Like it's not something that we just tend to do, give away something that we own. And so it seems that Jesus has been sort of been working behind the scenes to set this whole thing up. He's gone into the town. He's kind of arranged this cult to be there when he needs it. He's given the code word. This is what they're going to say when you ask him the question. You, know, you give them the donkey, let them move on with it. You know, Jesus has followers that we hear about a lot. The 12 disciples, guys like Paul, guys like Barnabas. There's even some key women throughout the New Testament who help support Jesus' ministry. But he's got scores of disciples and scores of followers who their names are never mentioned in the New Testament they're never given the spotlight, they're never given the stage, and yet they are important for him in fulfilling his mission. And so here's the thing, if, just to offer some encouragement to you, if you've ever wondered if your contribution actually mattered, or if you ever felt underappreciated and undervalued, and you've wondered, like, why am I even doing the things that I'm doing? Like, why was I here at 945 to serve at the hour before when no one was going to be able to be here on Sunday because of the snow, and you thought, no one's even going to thank me for this? You take encouragement from the fact that when you offer something back to Jesus, nothing is wasted. There's absolutely nothing wasted. There were guys here at 6 o'clock in the morning when I got here. They were already shoveling snow off of sidewalks and off of roads so we could come and we could worship. If you offer something up to the Lord, whether you get recognition for not should be irrelevant. Because remember, you're not serving men, you're serving the Lord, right? So like, it's not going to be wasted. Jesus is using what you bring him in humility and faith to help others know that he is Lord and Savior, that he is king. And that actually takes us to verse 8. Look at verse 8. We're going to see Jesus as king. This is his purpose for coming in to Jerusalem in this way. It says in verse 8, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so there's this whole scene where Jesus, he's coming in 
on this colt. There are people waving branches. They are shouting out for him, laying their cloaks on the road. This type of entrance was very appropriate uh, for the culture of that day because when a ruler or a king would come into town, everything would stop and people would greet him with, with great fanfare and a lot of cheering. And if you think about it, it's not altogether different from what happens today. If you've got a celebrity coming to town, you've got an important leader coming to town, like that town, the attention, all the energy in it, it stops and everyone snaps to attention. Uh, I live in, in Owensboro, Kentucky. It's not a huge place, but it's got 100,000 people or so in that general uh, area. And a few weeks ago, former President Bill Clinton and Vice President Joe Biden, they came to town to attend the memorial service of a, of a politician from Owensboro. And so the whole town, like, everything stopped to recognize that this, this president, former president was coming to town, the vice president was coming to town. Like, we still do this even today. And so Jesus is following a familiar pattern here, but what he does is he intentionally breaks from the script. Because he doesn't ride into town on a war horse like other rulers or kings would have done that day. He rides into town, what the Bible says, on this, on this colt. And he does so to, to indicate that he's a different type of king than what the world has come to expect. Like when you, when you see this word, like the colt, like you shouldn't think of like the Indianapolis colts. Uh, this isn't a big horse with like the flaring nostril who's coming into town. Like this is just a tiny little animal uh, he's riding. It's just a donkey. Pastor Tim Keller uh, writes about this scene and he's a pastor in New York City and he goes, this animal is a steed fit less for a king and more for a hobbit. So you picture like Frodo Baggins. This is for Frodo Baggins to ride into town on this type of thing. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, this is how he comes into town. And he does so to indicate that he is the king promised by the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this is what that prophecy said. It said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, which means the people of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. This was a sign that a king was coming. He says, righteous and having salvation is he. Remember, they called him Hosanna that says he saves. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. That seems in our minds that it's willfully inappropriate for Jesus to enter in uh, on, such a, on such a humble animal. He deserves a whole lot more than what he's getting in this scene. But he does so again to communicate that even though he is a king, he is not the type of king that the world has come to expect. He is, a, he is a humble king. And yet the same humble king who rides into town or he sort of ambles in on this donkey today, he's going to show up tomorrow and when he comes, he's going to clear the temple. You remember that scene? Jesus comes in, he turns over the tables and he says, my father's house was meant to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And so this humble king, he's difficult to pin down. It's not that Jesus is elusive. It's not that he's hard to know. He just doesn't fit into our, any of our nice little categories and boxes, does he? We like to categorize people. We like to say, he's conservative and she's liberal. Or he's young and she's old. Or they're progressive and we're, we're traditionalists. Or this church is Arminian and this church is reformed. We like to come up with all these categories. It makes us feel good makes us feel comfortable, like we're in control, and we can put someone else in a box. But here's the thing, when it comes to Jesus, you are never in control, right? You, you are never the one in control. That's what it means to call him Lord. Jesus is the one who is in control. He is the one who is boss, and so in this scene, it's difficult to pin him down. He is a king, but he's riding in on a donkey. 
And Jonathan Edwards, who was, a, he was an 18th century preacher, he was kind of reflecting on this idea while he was reading the book of Revelation. Revelation was written by one of Jesus' followers named John. And in Revelation chapter 5, John is told to turn around and look at Jesus. And he's told that when he sees Jesus, he's going to see a lion. He goes, so turn and look for the lion. And it's a common imagery in Scripture for, for Jesus to be a lion. That is a king. Uh, lion is, is a majesty full of majestic. You've been going through this sermon series. It's been called the king. It's got a picture of a lion on it. And yet John is told to look for the lion, but when he turns around in the book of Revelation, he doesn't find a lion. Remember what he finds? He finds a lamb. And not just any lamb, he finds a lamb that's been slain. And so this is the verse from Revelation 5, verse 5. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. He goes, See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John's told to look for the lion. But then this is what comes in verse 6. It says, Then I saw, not a lion, he saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. Because he's at the center of the throne, we know this is still pointing to Jesus. He's still seeing Jesus. He sees him as a lamb. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so in just one breath, Jesus is portrayed as lion and the lamb. It's the same thing we see in Mark chapter 11. He's coming into town and he is a king, but he is a, he is a humble king. And so Jonathan Edwards kept reflecting upon this and he was looking at all these things that we find in Jesus that we feel are mutually exclusive, but they're both fully fulfilled in Christ. And so he said this, he goes, in Jesus, we find perfect justice, yet boundless grace. He's full of justice and truth, but he's also full of grace. He says, in Jesus, we find absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. He's in control of the entire universe, and yet he's entirely submissive to the will of his Father. He says, we find all sufficiency in Jesus. He's all sufficient in and of himself, but yet he has this trust and dependence upon his Father. I mean, there are these, these mutually polarizing things that show up in Jesus' life. Colossians chapter 1 tells us he's the image of the invisible God. He's the fullness of deity in bodily form. Like he holds the whole universe together. He's the glue that keeps everything working. And yet John's gospel tells us that Jesus is close enough to our pain that he weeps with us. And he's close enough to our mess that he'll bend down and he'll stoop and he'll wash our feet. Remember that scene where he washes the disciples' feet? John chapter 13. That's one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. Jesus is there. It's his last night with his disciples. He knows it's his last night. He's sitting there with the guys. It's the last meal he's going to share with them. He's at the head of the table. means the place of authority. And he gets up from his seat of authority. He takes off his outer garments. He puts a towel around his waist. And he proceeds to go around and wash the feet of his disciples. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because it's well documented. Pre preachers talk about it all the time. People didn't wash feet in Jewish culture. I mean, that's not something that you did for someone else. You washed your own feet or at the... At the very most, a servant might wash your feet for you, but even servants weren't always required to wash feet. In fact, John 13, it is the only recorded instance we have in ancient history of a person of power washing the feet of someone who is considered socially inferior. And it, Jesus does this for his guys. And he does it for the guys who just a couple hours later are going to abandon and betray him. And that's why when Jesus gets to Peter, you remember what Peter says? Peter tells him, like, there is no way you were going to wash my feet. And he says it in the strongest 
possible way he had available to him. He said, this is not going to happen. In our language, it would be like over my dead body. You are not going to do this. And Jesus tells him, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. What Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to communicate something that can't be said only with words. He's saying, if you can't take me washing your feet tonight, how are you going to handle me hanging on a cross tomorrow? Because that's where I'm headed, Peter. And if you can't take me in this moment stooping down to serve you and wash your feet, you're not going to be able to handle me hanging on a tree tomorrow evening. Peter, how are you going to handle this? You see, there are some things in life that they are so important, they not only have to be communicated, they have to be communicated in a particular way. And so we see Jesus. He rides into town on a donkey to show that he is a king, but he is a humble king. There is majesty and there is meekness. We see Jesus taking off his clothes and putting on a towel and washing his disciples' feet. He's the one in charge of the meal, and he's taking on the position of a servant. There's authority in their servanthood. Jesus is the son of God. He's the one that holds the universe together, and yet he's going to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is, there is sovereignty, and yet there is submission. He is the lion, and he is the lamb. And here's the thing. There are some times that you need to know Jesus is lion, aren't there? Because you need him to be powerful, and you need him to be strong, and you need to know that he has everything under control. And you need him to step into your life with authority and tell you that there is a better way to live than you're currently living. You can trust me. I'll put you on my back and we're going to get there. And then there are other times where you need Jesus to be more gentle like a lamb, right? You need him to put his hand on your back and tell you everything's going to be okay. You need him to bend down and, and wash your feet and look you in the eye and say, you've messed up, but go and sin no more. Like, we're good. I still got your back. We need Jesus to be all of these things and more. And I think that's why the, the New Testament gives us so many pictures of Jesus. Because one won't quite suffice. Some things are so important, they not only have to be communicated, they've got to be communicated in a particular way. And so this Jesus, I don't know how you need to meet him this morning. I don't know if you need him to be strong. Do you need him to be a lion? Or is today a day that you need him to be a lamb? You need him to be gentle with you and tell you it's going to be okay. He'll, he'll meet you either way. Whatever you need him to be, he's going to be that for you and even more. But he wants to be there for you if you will let him be there. And I think it's interesting that when he returns, the picture we're given is that of a wedding feast. I started by talking about marriage proposals. Well, when Jesus comes back, we're told that there's going to be a feast. It's going to be a, a, a marriage ceremony. It means he wants to be in a relationship with you in the most intimate way imaginable. And he proposed to you in the most powerful way possible, like he gave down his life. And so when our king invites you to be in relationship with him, he doesn't extend a golden scepter like the kings of that day. He extends a nail-pierced hand. And he says, you come, you be in relationship. But this is grace. You come here. Nothing you did to earn this. There's nothing that you can do to keep it. It's offered to you freely. And whenever we have that moment of hope, like Jesus comes to offer us this hope, hope always leads to celebration. Like, if you understand what Christ has accomplished for you and the hope that he brings, that always leads us to celebration. It's why the people in Mark 11 were singing his praises and hailing him because they understood the hope that was coming their way. Hosanna, they said, he saves. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Like, they knew what Jesus meant in that moment for them, and they praised him for it. 
So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to have an invitation time that's maybe a little bit different than normal. We want to continue in that same spirit of Mark chapter 11, understanding the hope that Jesus brings us, and we want to celebrate and praise him for it. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and afterwards, we're going to sing a few songs, and we're going to belt these songs out to God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you belt these out to him because you understand that Jesus Christ is both your lion and your lamb. He is everything that you need him to be and so much more. And if you're here this morning and you say, man, I, I need to know he's there. I need to trust that. I need someone to put their arm around me and pray with me and tell me that same message. There are going to be people right over here to my left and your right. They would love to pray with you, let you know that God is there with you. They'll be that hands and feet of Jesus for you in this moment. But let's pray together, and then we're going to offer up praise to our God. Father, I thank you for the message of Mark chapter 11. I thank you that when we see Jesus, he doesn't fit in any tiny little box. He's not simply our king. He's not simply a humble servant. He is both majestic and he is meek. He is Lord, but he is also a servant. He is the son of God, but he's also the son who, who gave his life all the way to the point of death on a cross. And so, Lord, however we need to, to meet or interact with Jesus this morning, would you help us come to you by faith? There's some of us here who need to know Jesus as that majestic lion. We need to know that he is powerful and strong, and he's got our mess under control. And there's others of us who just need to know that he is near us, and he loves us, and he's not given up on us. And God, so we're going to offer up these songs to you in faith. And we're going to trust that whatever stage of life we find ourselves in whatever mess we've created for ourselves you've not given up on us you were there and you deserve praise for that lord we love you we pray all this in the holy and powerful name of jesus christ and all god's people said